back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? Ready? Are you ready for place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league? I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everything is going well for you here on this Monday, the 25th day of July, the final Monday of the month. Hope you all had a very safe, fun, relaxing weekend, especially in the middle of this heat wave that we are dealing with here in the eastern side of the uh, country. You know, it has not been a pleasant last week for my sweet little uh, puppy dog, Broccoli, who has not been able to go outside for many, if any, walks in the last uh, week. But uh, I've tried to keep him on as positive note as possible. And, you know, that that's what I'm here for for all of you today. You know, try to keep things on as possible, even uh, keel playing field as uh, possible, despite what has been an annoying last couple of days since coming back from the All-Star break for the New York Yankees. And, you know, I knew it was going to be tough coming out of the All-Star break. I mean, you, no matter who you're playing, teams will rise up for playing against the Yankees, especially with the start that they've seen them get off to this year, how their people, you know, a month ago that thought that, oh, they're going to break the 2001 Seattle Mariners uh, record for most wins in the regular season. That has never been something that I'm truly concerned about. My main concern for the Yankees is how they can best be situated for a long, deep run in the postseason, and hopefully finally win World Series championship number 28. But of course, along the way, there would be pitfalls, potential roadblocks, and there's that one roadblock that we've known about all along, that we, as Yankee fans, and the Yankees themselves, seemingly can't get past, because for the majority of my life, the number one rival, the the team that you hated the most, was the Boston Red Sox. But over the last several years, excluding you know 2018 when they won the championship, for most of the last decade, the Red Sox have not been great. They had that run in 2018, as mentioned, winning uh, their fourth title in this millennium. But they have uh, had a lot of mediocre down years. You know, 
mixed around Alex Cora leading them to uh, that championship. And it, you know, the rivalry is not as fun when you have one team dominating the other. I mean, hell, you you look at everybody in the division is seemingly dominating the Boston Red Sox right now. They they have a run differential of like minus 47 in their last four or five games here. Got blown out by the Blue Jays on Friday night, 28 to 5. But the main rival for the Yankees right now and any Yankee fan out there is, of course, the Houston Astros. That has become the team that we hate the most. They're the team that has knocked the Yankees out of the postseason three times in their last five or six trips to the playoffs. Now, they're the team <laughs> that in most, <laughs> in most Yankee fans' minds has taken away two opportunities at world championships due to things beyond the playing field. Now, I've said repeatedly it's it's time to move on from 2017 and, and concert, there's nothing we could do about changing that. We have to get past it and try and you know win that next championship. You can't live in the past forever. But the Astros just continue to be a pain in the ass that the Yankees have got to try to overcome. They are right now the Yankees' biggest threat to uh, getting to a World Series in the American League. When you look at all the injuries that Tampa has dealt with, Toronto has fired their manager and uh, been suspect at best at times. Uh, You look at there's no one threatening the Astros in the, the American League West. There's no one in the central that you look at and say, oh, that they've got a chance against either one of these teams. So it's really, it's going to come down to Yankees versus Astros for who's coming out of the American League to go to the World Series. And one of the big things that the Yankees have wanted to do all this year is making sure they have home field advantage throughout the American League playoffs so that if they are to go up against the Astros in the ALCS, Game 7 would be at Yankee Stadium rather than Minute Maid Park. A place that has been kind of a, a house of horrors for the Yankees in recent times. But you, you look at the, the Astros, they have had the Yankees number this year. They've won five of the seven matchups between them, and yeah, all, the outcome of all of these games has been relatively close, have been you know, one to two score uh, games, with the exception uh, being uh, the uh, no-header that the Astros had against the Yankees. I believe they won that game 3 nothing. But the Yankees have been in every one of these games against the Astros, have just not been able to get the big hit. I mean, they've pitched fine against them. It's just they can't figure out the Astros pitching plan against the Yankees when it, you watch the game. It's pretty simple. They're pitching low and away to the right-handers and busting uh, our lefties inside. They're trying to get the, the Yankees to you know 
go the other way and the Yankees just keep trying to pull things against the Astros, especially at Minute Maid Park where they have these short ports there in the left field. And now it was a, another damning day against the Astros this past Thursday where you knew coming into the second half that the Yankees had a day-night doubleheader against this team. And they got the big hit at one point. I kind of forget was game-tying single in the ninth inning. Just were never able to go ahead against Houston. I mean, you realize that the only time that they have led a game against the Houston Astros this year is on their two walk-off hits by Aaron Judge. The walk-off single in that first game of the four-game set at Yankee Stadium, and then his walk-off home run in extra innings to win that game. Other than that, they have not had a lead against this team. They And the Astros, they're not a great offensive uh, team by any means anyway. They, the reason that they're winning games is because they play very good defense and have a top-five pitching staff in the American League. They've, they're a team that you can't afford to make mistakes against. They'll hit their fair share of home runs, but they're not going to get a lot of guys on base. They're not going to uh, drive in a lot of runs with uh, you know runners in scoring position. They have kind of become you know waiting for the home run uh, like the Yankees have for the most part. But you know that it, it's it's annoying. It's frustrating. Now the, you you can clearly see what the problem here is, but they seemingly have been unable to solve this problem, unable to crack the code against them, and they've got to start doing it uh, soon because you know that they're going, they're not going to see them again in this regular season, but they're going to see them in the postseason. It's it feels like a fate of comp play between these two teams that they're going to meet up again. In, in this year's postseason. And a while back, the Yankees had a double-digit lead on this Astro team when it came to home field advantage. Now, it's windled down to a game and a half. And it's going to keep windling down unless A, John Carlos Stanton uh, takes the field again, B, and they figure out what the hell's going on in their bullpen. I mean, Friday night, they they win against uh, the Orioles in the first of their three-game set there, uh, taking two out of three down in Baltimore this weekend. But it was a win that felt like a loss when you take into account Tyon couldn't go th- get past the third inning. Uh, Lewisica was meh at best. Chapman is a lost cause at, at this point. The only reason he's still on the team is because he makes $16 million and can throw the ball 100 miles an hour. Other than that, he, he's really not good for anything. I mean, you look at he he's been arguably the worst pitcher in baseball, worst relief pitcher in baseball, that is, since uh, MLB started cracking down on the spider tack uh, situation last year. An ERA north of five and a whip of well over one and a half and given up two home runs per every nine innings that he pitches. 
And add on top of that now, they've lost their second best reliever, Michael King, for the season to a fractured elbow. And now you're only left hoping that it's not more than that. That it's only a fractured elbow and not, oh, when they go in to do surgery on it, they don't see torn ligaments and are forced to do Tommy John surgery. Between that, getting Stanton back on the field, and finding some help for this starting rotation. Because who knows when you're getting Severino back. Tyon has been a mess for a while now. Cortez is starting to get things going a bit his last couple of starts. But you worry about him running into some kind of innings wall. And Montgomery, you just take whatever you can get from him. They need to get another starter in this rotation. And that is not... Continuing to go with Domingo Herman. Domingo Herman should not take the mound on Wednesday night against the New York Mets at City Field. Not just because they're going up against Max Scherzer, but because Domingo Herman sucks. Domingo Herman has an ERA north of five since the end of April of 2019. Remember that year where he won 18 games? It was a cute little story there until he uh, got put on leave from baseball due to uh, the domestic violence accusations against him. He's been awful. His ERA since then is just around five, and he's gotten away with having good run support. I mean, he gave the Yankees no chance to win in his first start on Thursday. And I don't want to hear that he was making his first start of the season. You didn't expect him to go long anyway. You know at this point what you're going to get from Domingo Herman. Now, quite frankly, I don't understand their infatuation with this guy anymore as, as it is when you take into effect he pitches poorly um, in the last couple of years and he's just you know, a bad guy to have on this team. But they need to go get another starting pitcher. They need to get some bullpen help as well. I'll get to the bullpen help later, but I've, I'll keep saying this until... Either it happens or somebody else trades from. The guy to go get is Luis Castillo from the Cincinnati Reds. You've got him under control through next season. And yeah, you're going to have to give up a decent prospect or two uh, to get him. But like the old saying goes, you get to get something good, you got to give up something good. And I've long been saying that the package to put together is giving up the young shortstop prospect, Oswaldo Peraza, because he's seemingly blocked as far as getting to the big leagues right now with kind of Falefa as the placeholder for in all likelihood their number one prospect, Anthony Volpe, some point uh, next year. And they've got depth in the organization at shortstop outside of Volpe with Trey Sweeney and a couple of others. Pair him with one of your pitching prospects, Somebody that's in your top 10 to 15 prospects, whether it's this kid they talk about at AAA, Waldachuk, um, Luis Medina at AA, you got to put Clark Schmidt in there. One of these guys, pair them up with Peraza, give them a, a, a low-level minor league prospect as well, and get this done. Luis Castillo is currently scheduled to pitch for the Cincinnati Reds on Wednesday. He should not be making that start. He better not be making that start. His next start, better be in Yankee pinstripes because this, you know, this is a, a season you can't afford to just say, oh, it's a crap shoot. We'll take our best shot at it. No, 
you got off to a historic start at one point. You're 35 games over 500, and we're not even at the end of July yet. You have Aaron Judge doing remarkable things. Just his 37th home run of the season yesterday is on pace to break Roger Maris's single-season team record for most home runs. LeMahieu and Torres have had bounce-back years, even though I'm a bit annoyed with Glaber's uh, base running uh, lately, but I digress. Stanton was playing well, though. Now, can you take the field? I mean, you're exhausted after being the MVP of the All-Star game. You, you're getting this out-of-nowhere season from a guy like Trevino. Hicks has been pretty good. This lineup all the way around, been pretty good. And maybe you could stand to add an, another outfielder. But they have the offense there. They need help in pitching. That's the only way that they're going to overcome this Houston Astros problem in the postseason. And you know whether they like to admit it, it is a problem. It's you know a ghost that hangs over their head. And not like Sam Darnold claiming he sees ghosts from the Patriots' defense. No, this is something that is real. They knocked you off in the wild card game in 2015. We all know what happened in 2017 with how it was a only home teams win a series in that ALCS. And then we believe that they cheated the Yankees out of a second opportunity to get to the World Series in 2019 with Jose Altuve possibly wearing some kind of uh, buzzer of some kind against Chapman. And now, now's the time to make big moves. Now, yeah, it may sting Brian Cashman to give up certain prospects he loves, but you can't prospect hug forever. You can't give, hold on to all of these guys. Not all of them are going to play for the New York Yankees. Their purpose there is to help the big league club, whether that means some of them at some point play for the team or in a more likely stance, use them as chips, use them as the pieces that you need to go get what is necessary to make sure that this coming October, the Yankees are celebrating winning championship number 28 in their franchise's illustrious history. All right, a lot left to get to over the uh, remainder of this podcast this week. Uh, Give you some thoughts on the All-Star game last week, uh, the, the continued saga with Juan Soto, mixing the Mets, uh, as well as some thoughts on Kevin Durant, Kylie, Kyrie, Kyler Murray, excuse me, his new contract extension with the Cardinals, as well as uh, my thoughts on uh, the documentary on Derek Jeter that ESPN just uh, began to reveal the captain. So, Plenty to get to over the next about 40, 45 minutes or so here. So please, sit back, relax, help, put your feet up on the table if you feel like it, and continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back.
Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping It Sports with M3 on this Monday afternoon. Here. Coming off of All-Star Week, where normally there's not a lot to talk about. Now, the, the, the game, as we've said before, is what it is at this point. I, I'm glad that they got rid of that dopey rule that was there for a long time. You know, they overreacted to what happened in Milwaukee years ago with the, that tie by feeling that, oh, there was the need to put something uh, on the line in this game. I mean, you couldn't have a game in which every team needs to be represented in it, decide home field advantage for the World Series because at some point you were bound to have a team that had 100 wins going up against a team that had, say, 89 wins and that 89-win team getting the home field advantage. It, it should have been a better record all along. Even, even alternating it each year between the two leagues was a better idea than what they did uh, with uh, the All-Star game. But it's a fun thing for the fans. Last week we clearly saw that, you know, Pitching still dominates this sport. The The fact that it was, a, 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 a low-scoring game, and B, all the strikeouts that you had along the way. And you're seeing you know one guy parade in after another, throwing harder than the guy previous to him. And you know, even though, as I said, it's an exhibition, it doesn't count for anything, I like the fact that Fox decided to do some creative things to keep fans invested keep fans entertained, especially the fact that the National League didn't do much to keep you entertained when after the first inning, they didn't have another hit, didn't have another base runner until late in the eighth inning. But the stuff they did with miking the players up on the field, including, you know, miking up the pitchers, uh, the, we saw Amongst them, Alex Manoa from uh, the Toronto Blue Jays mic'd up as he's pitching, and he's getting all pumped up, amped up on the mound as he uh, struck out three in his inning. Essentially, you know, it's lucky that either he was not loud enough for the hitter to hear him or for uh, the hitters to have the mic as well because he's uh, you know, essentially saying what he's throwing before he, he throw it. Uh, 
Jose Trevino was you know, a, a riot during uh, the sixth inning. I thought I, I love the fact that they kept him mic'd up the, the entire time, especially he's coming up to the plate. He, he's like, oh, still mic'd up? All right, I guess I'll keep on talking. And even as he got his base hit there, and then you had them interviewing players in the dugout throughout the game after they did stuff, especially when uh, – uh, Stanton and Buxton went back to back there uh, to give uh, the American League uh, the lead in the game. So all the way around, I thought it was a well done production by MLB, well done uh, by Fox. Like like I said, really doesn't mean <laughs> much in the grand scheme of things, but that's the time to test things out, test things out for keeping the casual baseball fan in in the mix keep them entertained and want to stick with it you know stuff like this is not necessary to do in the nfl or the nba but in a sport like baseball which has clearly fallen from being america's pastime to being you know the third most popular sport in most of this country things like that are necessary at time, especially when you want to grow the popularity of the game. Now, the night before, we saw the home run derby, which was won by Juan Soto, still currently of the Washington Nationals, who, now, there was nowhere you could turn last week without him being a topic. Every, you know, major media sports outlet was talking about his long-term future, even his short-term future, and whether or not the Nationals are going to be able to get a trade done for this guy before the August 2nd trade deadline coming up a week from tomorrow. I have long maintained that I feel it's, you know, I don't want to say impossible because, you know, as Kevin Garnett once yelled, anything is possible. But I find a deal like this is hard to put together in such a short time frame because, A, you've got to scout out all the prospects, make sure you you get the ones that you like, and you're going to be asking for a boatload of guys. And, B, if you're the team that's getting him back, I don't care what anyone says, I want him signed up to a long-term deal before I make this kind of commitment as far as trading away as, <laughs> trading away assets like that. Now, I, I know Scott Boris is his agent, and he's a pain in the ass to deal with, and it, it seems like he's hell-bent with getting this kid to free agency. But you're going to give up all of that, even though you, you would have him for three postseason uh, opportunities, potentially. You would have him for three cat, uh, kicks at the can at trying to get a world championship. But I would want to make sure that if I'm giving up all of my young assets to get this guy, that I have him for the entirety of his baseball greatness. And yeah, it's a risk uh, doing these long-term deals like this. Anytime you lock a guy up for beyond 10 years is a risk. I mean, you look at it, the Angels are dealing with the fact that they really can't afford much outside of Mike Trout 
and he's having a season coming off of uh, injury issues, even dealt with some injury problems uh, this year. And even with how great he is, they haven't been able to draw a lot of fans at their ballpark and haven't been able to win a lot of games because they're not putting a good team around him. You look at with the Padres, yeah, it was, I said at the time it was smart for Tatis to take the 14-year deal, but so far the Padres haven't got a lot of bang for their buck because he's had two injuries, one of them being off the baseball field, and we still haven't seen him this year. But I talked about it last week, the greatness that this kid has gotten off to to start his career, and he's still only 20 three years old. I mean, who wouldn't want to trade for a young stud like this? Who wouldn't want to trade for a phenomenal, remarkable talent like um, Juan Soto, who his best years are probably still ahead of him. That's why you've already seen seven to eight teams uh, thrown in there, and it's probably more. You know, every team should at least inquire, should at least contact them to see what it would take. But I don't think it's going to be either one of our teams in this area, the Yankees or the Mets, uh, pulling off this deal. As I said, the Yankees have things they should be more concerned about as far as getting pitching. And while it would be a great safety net in case Aaron Judge left as a free agent, I think that would already be writing off Aaron Judge as possibly staying if you were to, say, make the trade and lock Soto up to a long-term deal without Judge having his long-term deal already. And Judge is continuing to show that he was clearly in the right to turn down the Yankees' offer, wait and test free agency, because it's his one crack at being a real free agent. But, you know, I've seen a lot of places where the Mets have called, talk to the Nationals, Met fans getting their hopes up, and the Mets should, that's something Billy Eppler should do, at least make the phone call. The worst thing that can happen is you're told no. But I, for the life of me, cannot see him being traded inside the division. They would want every single prospect you have and something on the big league roster for uh, that to even be considered. And I don't know whether it's the current ownership or the future ownership that's about to complete a purchase of the Washington Nationals. I don't know who down there in our nation's capital would be able to stomach seeing Juan Soto play for the New York Mets against the Nationals, you know, however much, many times it would be uh, you know, with how the schedule is shifting uh, next year. But the Mets desperately need to add some offense to their lineup. And this weekend was a clear example of it. Losing two out of three to a really good Padres team, a team that they could see in the postseason that has – legitimate horses in their rotation, including you Darvish. I know he didn't get a lot of help last night and ran out of gas at one point, but Joe Musgrove, pretty damn good. Up there in the National League uh, Cy Young conversation. Mike Clevenger, 
has bounced back relatively well from Tommy John's surgery. So the, now that's the kind of rotations, that's the kind of pitchers you're going to deal with in the postseason. And if you, you, know, the, you look at the Mets offense, since the start of June, when the Braves went on this run to come within a game and a half as we sit here right now of the Mets in the standings, the Mets offense has been very pedestrian. They, they are bottom five in the league since then in average, on base, slugging, runs per game, and hitting with runners in scoring position. And look at this weekend, for example. They went five for 25 with runners in scoring position and needed to go four for 13 last night to even make that look somewhat decent. That means before that, the first two games, they were one for 12 with the runners in scoring position. They had chance after chance against the Padres and could not take advantage of any of those opportunities that were presented to them. And while they did make a trade before the start of the weekend to get a bat in here, going and getting Daniel Vogel back from the, the Pirates, that's not enough. That's not the bat that's going to put him over the top. I know, you know, the Met fans were cheering him, gave him a standing ovation before his at bat last night. But that's because, you know, they're desperate to get some kind of offense added to this team where you've had some black holes in the lineup this year, where Dom Smith has been a nothing. JD Davis has not given you a lot. Eduardo Escobar, yeah, he's got 11 home runs, but you realize that he's got a low on base percentage and is only hitting about uh, 235 on uh, the season. Hell, it's even worse than that, 219. Damn. I, he's, he's been uh, very head and, head and miss. He's had a, you know, one or two streaks there, but for the, the most part, you know, the, the only thing that saves him from being a bigger story in this area is how bad Joey Gallo's been for the New York Yankees. Otherwise, we'd be talking about Escobar as the worst baseball player in uh, the, the New York City area. But they need to get a bat there, whether it's going and making a trade for Josh Bell, you know, going and getting uh, you know, C.J. Crone, uh, going to get Contreras from the Cubs, or bringing up Alvarez uh, from the minor leagues and putting him at behind the plate, something's got to be done to improve this offense. And you now, the Mets could use some help in their pitches. Definitely. For right now, their rotation has held serve, even without Jacob DeGrom. And who knows when we're going to see him again, considering he had his sim game pushed back last week from Tuesday to Thursday. And even though Things came out well from that after reported shoulder soreness early in the week. There's no guarantees with this guy when it comes, especially to the injuries they've dealt with in the, the last year. And the fact that you're without Tyler McGill right now, and in all likelihood when he comes back, he'll be a relief pitcher. The Mets are going to have to uh, look for possibly some help in that pitching staff. And I said it earlier, you know, both the Mets and the Yankees could use some help in that bullpen. There's guys that are going to be available. The 
the premier name, the top name that's going to be available is the closer for the Pittsburgh Pirates, uh, David Bednard. He's had a breakout year showing that last year was no fluke, was was an all-star for them. It's going to take a lot to get him considering Pittsburgh has him under team control for three more <laughs> three more seasons after this. But he's worth it. You put him, get him, and put him there as your eighth inning setup guy ahead of whether you're the, the Mets' Edwin Diaz or you're the Yankees uh, with Clay Holmes, and you've got a, a, a legit lockdown eighth, ninth inning combo there. And you don't want to have too many circumstances where you're asking one of those guys to go more than an inning, at least during the regular season here. And even beyond Bednar, you've got guys that are under team control for the rest of this year that are having good years that could be a good piece in a bullpen. Michael Fulmer for the Tigers has adjusted well to uh, switching from starting to relieving. Here's a name from the past I'm sure people forgot about, but he's had a career renaissance the last couple of years. Daniel Bard. I remember him when he was with the Red Sox about a decade ago and then fell apart as a starting pitcher. You realize he was out of baseball for seven years, was a high school um, baseball coach, and then decided to take another crack at it and has been pretty good for the Rockies these last couple of years. And then uh, there's, of course, a familiar name to people in this area, and that's David Robertson, who it's weird to think that He's 37 years old. It feels like he's been around forever, but he's had a great year for the Cup. So there are arms out there for both of these teams, both the Mets and the Yankees, to go get. And as I said with the Yankees, if you're the Mets, don't let opportunity pass by you. Yeah, you have Alonzo, who's still young, McNeil, who's still young. But not, you look at the rest of this team, it's not a bunch of young guys. Canna is kind of a stopgap guy there in the left field. Marte is not young. Your catching situation it remains to be seen when Alvarez comes up, but neither none of those guys are uh, young there. You know, Escobar, you're not getting a lot of out of out of at third base, and you know, you know, you're going to have Lindor for the next decade, but he's still been kind of adjusting to life as a New York athlete. So there are needs for both of these teams to uh, fill in the next eight days. And we'll see if their front offices make the necessary moves. I believe both teams will make moves, but is it going to be just kind of, as they say, putting lipstick on a pig kind of moves, or are they going to go out and swing for the fences and, take every chance that they can get at making this a special year for one of these two franchises. All right, going to take a break here, come back on the other side, uh, get to some NBA, NFL stuff, you know, plenty to get to, continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Can 
Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping Sports with M3 on this Monday afternoon. Remember, as always, where you can find the podcast across social media to tell your friends about Facebook.com slash Keeping It Sports with M3, as well as on Twitter at M3 Rosansky. That's my personal Twitter account, M T H R E E R O Z A N S K Y at M3 Rosansky, as well as at Keeping it sports. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram, uh, keeping underscore it underscore sports underscore with underscore M3. All the places you can find the podcast across social media, as well as find it on Spotify and Podbean. On each of the social media platforms, you'll find the link to uh, listen to the podcast version each and every single week. That is unless you want to watch the video version of it on Facebook.com if you can stand to look at me for an hour. Now, I'm be- I've never been much of this whole cancel culture thing. I've always said that our voice is our most powerful weapon. I've said, you know, feel free to speak your mind as long as you're not telling us lies, as long as you're not telling us anything that has been proven incorrect, but I'm really beginning to wonder why the hell anyone gives a damn about anything that comes out of Lane Kiffin's mouth anymore. Because he comes off, no, every time there's a microphone put in front of him as the most whiny, complainy, little crybaby that there is. I mean, it's one thing when Nick Saban complains about things that are going on in the college sports that he feels are disadvantageous to Alabama. And that's the only time he um, complains about anything is when it's not going Alabama's way. You know, when a top recruit decides they want to go to Georgia or someone else in the SEC rather than Alabama, suddenly it's a problem. But at least he can do that. He's got what, seven or eight national championships. He's got some pellets on the wall that provide him that kind of backing. 
What the hell has Lane Kiffin ever done? I mean, you, you look at his career record. Yeah, he's 35 games over 500, 76 and 41. But he's won in 11 years only two conference titles, and that being in uh, Conference America when, uh, or Conference USA, excuse me, when he was uh, the head coach at uh, Liberty. He's two and three in bowl games. He's made zero appearances in BCS or New Year's uh, six bowl games. And constantly, we're going to him for sound bites. We're going to him for his opinion on things in, in college sports. The most recent being him once again complaining about the NIL deals for the college athletes. Complaining last Monday at SEC Media Day saying, quote, if you got boosters out there deciding who they're going to pay to come play and the coach isn't involved in it, how's that work? Do they just go pick who they want and then when they don't play, that's how it's going to work? So again, this was not thought out uh, at all, in my opinion, and it creates a massive set of issues. Yeah, it creates a massive set of issues because you're probably not getting the recruits you want. You're probably not getting the level of players you want, realizing that there's a level playing field anymore. Players realize they don't always have to just go to the big marquee schools in the SEC or the Big Ten to make a name for themselves. You know, and not that old miss is amongst the powerhouses of the <laughs> of the SEC. But he's annoyed that a school that wasn't always viewed as a top-tier program in the SEC is now getting up there in Texas A&M, who had the top signing class uh, this past year. And he's in the past joked how that, oh, are they going to have a luxury tax for how much they paid for their signing class? Really getting under the skin of Jimbo Fisher, both Lane Kiffin and Nick Saban. But as I said, Saban at least has pellets on the wall. He at least has some you know, backing to him. Well, Kiffin comes off as the guy that Oh, he was once the Wonderkin, but things haven't gone his way. Other people have surpassed him in having that kind of success, such as Dabo Sweeney and Jimbo Fisher, and now he he wants to whine. And that's the only reason he would come out and say, oh, there should be a salary cap to the NIL deals, which would be absolutely ridiculous. Is there a salary cap for college coaches? Is there a salary cap on how much you can spend on your training facility and uh, what you provide for not just your staff, but for your players? No. And remember, this is not a pay-for-play. You know, If it was pay-for-play, you would have to give it to everybody at the program in every form of college athletics. You can't do one thing for the football team and not the same for others. This is kids, rightly so, getting paid for their likeness and imaging. The ability to sign autographs, the ability to have 
their name or face put on t-shirts or posters or be in commercials. And as long as that's, you know, not affecting their, co their college play, because let's face it, you know, calling these guys student athletes, that went out the window a long time ago. They, they, they go to school for maybe a semester just long enough to remain eligible and then don't give a damn about it for the rest of the year or more times than not leave for their respective drafts anyway. But this was something that was long overdue. Has it turned things into the wild, wild west? Sure. But it's allowed you know, these kids to realize that, oh, I don't have to just go to this program or that program to get my name out there. And that is something that should have been allowed out there a long time ago. I mean, hell, if these coaches can just pick up and leave at the end of a season before you know, bowl season is completed or postseason play is completed, then why shouldn't the players get some kind of extra benefit? Why shouldn't they get to make some kind of off-the-field endorsement? Especially when we know 90% of them are probably not going to go pro in the, their uh, sport anyway. A week ago, I thought, oh, goodbye, James Harden, by what he said to uh, the Sixers. He told uh, Daryl Morey, oh, go do what you have to do in free agency. I'll take what's ever left over um, after they're done signing free agents. And there were a lot of people that thought, oh, he's going to take like $20 million per year, please. He barely took a pay cut here. And... It, something really smells fishy here because he signed a two-year extension last week for $68.6 million, an extension that he won't complete because it's $33 million this year with 35.6 on the second year, but that second year is a player option. And quite frankly, the league should probably look into this deal because we all know what probably happened here. There was a little wink-wink agreement between Maury and Harden saying, oh, you had a bad second half this year, so take $14.5 million less, sign this two-year deal, and then next year when you opt out, we'll give you the Supermax extension where you'll be able to make back that money you lost out on. How cute, how wise, how, how noble of James Harden. I and mean, quite frankly, this is... You know, it's kind of sickening, and the league should really look into it. Listen, I know I said earlier that every team should look into Juan Soto in Major League Baseball, but at times in sports, it's okay to stay status quo. It's okay to stick with what you have rather than and don't go out there for the big fish. And right now in NBA free agency, of course, the big fish is Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant, who, while he's not a free agent, has four years left to control and has told the Brooklyn Nets he would like to be traded. And while the Nets are under no obligation to move him unless they get blown away, they have been talking to other teams. You've seen... The Heat 
the Suns, the Raptors, their names all come up. But a name came out in the wee early hours of this morning that, quite frankly, had me take a step back and wondering why. Even despite as great Kevin Durant is, why would this team be involved in trade discussions for Kevin Durant? And that, of course, being the reigning, defending Eastern Conference champion, Boston Celtics. You have a team that was good enough to come two games away from beating the Golden State Warriors to become NBA champions. And you're getting in the mix for trading for Kevin Durant where you would have to trade away one of your young building blocks in Jalen Brown, who's an all-star caliber player in his own right, that you have under control for less money and can still pay him the most. You have a boatload of draft picks, some of which that you got from the Brooklyn Nets, and you're willing to give some of that back to get Kevin Durant, who seemingly is, after a while, unhappy wherever he goes. I mean, he wanted he wanted to leave Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors. Now, after two years of playing for the Nets, he wants out because... Quite frankly, I think he's sick of Kyrie Irving. And now uh, the the Celtics want to get in the mix of this. And the Nets, now after they got taken through the mud, run over in the in the uh, deal for KG and Paul Pierce years ago, you know they're going to want their pound of flesh from the Boston Celtics. That's why it's not surprising that you're seeing reports where they want not just Jalen Brown, but Derek White and Marcus Smart, along with three first-round draft picks and two pick swaps. I I don't understand what the Celtics are, are doing. Yeah, you're getting one of the best players in the league, but he's 10 years older than Jalen Brown and is seemingly always unhappy. You've put a good nucleus there together around your big three up in Boston that was good enough to get you to the Eastern Conference Finals and have you two games away from winning an NBA championship. Why change that up? Why, you know, essentially, you know, you you would be taking the ball somewhat out of Tatum's hands because Tatum would go from being your number one guy, the face of your franchise, to your number two. And as I said, in order to pull that off, you would have to give up valuable pieces, including the defensive player of the year in Marcus Smart. So I really don't get the Boston Celtics' involvement in this. A couple NFL notes here before I take a break. Uh, The San Francisco 49ers have granted... Jimmy Garoppolo and his agent permission to seek a trade because he's been cleared to practice now following his offseason shoulder surgery. This is one of two things in this offseason, or three, should I say, that seemingly will not go away. We had one of them solved a couple weeks ago, Baker Mayfield being traded from the Browns to the Panthers. Now we have two more hanging over the league. 
One of them being the Jimmy G situation and on whether he's going to get traded or not. And right now, there's very few possibilities for him. As, as underrated as I think he is, because while he, what he do may not be flashy, may not get all the highlights on SportsCenter, he does win games. And while he's not the number one reason uh, the 49ers have uh, won so many games uh, the last couple of years, why they've had a Super Bowl appearance and been in the postseason, he's hasn't exactly just been a complete passenger where he's turning the ball over left and right and you got to carry him to the promised land. He's been a good, solid quarterback in this league and could help some teams. Now, could help a team like the Detroit Lions could help the Seattle Seahawks who just traded Russell Wilson away this offseason. Help. He could be a, a nice either stopgap or replacement for Big Ben in Pittsburgh. So there's some there's some teams that don't exactly have their long-term solution, their long-term answer that could use him right now. Now a team that has made their decision on their long-term answer seemingly is the Arizona Cardinals with Kyler Murray, who finally we put together to end that uh, saga over the last couple of days with him signing a five-year extension worth $230.5 million with $160 million guaranteed. And now people will make a big deal about it, the fact that now annually he's the second highest paid uh, quarterback in average annual salary at just over $46 million per year. Now, quite frankly, he does not deserve to be the second highest paid quarterback in the sport. This is not a deal I would have done because of, A, how he slipped in performance last year and dealt with some injury issues. And I'm not even going to hold the playoff performance against him because we've seen a lot of guys struggle in their first uh, go-around in playoff games. And remember, he's, it, it was his first playoff appearance and he was only in his third year in the league. But him and his agent acted like complete pain in the asses and whiny babies. So I would have forced them to go through one more year of this song and dance. I mean, the team has him under control for at least, had him under control for at least uh, three more years with this year, uh, the, the fifth-year rookie option, as well as franchise tagging him. So you could have really made him wait and have to sit through it rather than uh, cave to his demands. And while we've seen Im- improvement each year, he's not a guy that I feel 100% comfortable handing the long-term future of my franchise to. He's not a guy on the level of Mahomes, Allen, Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow, guys that I'm saying in 10 years, they'll still be here. I'll have a Super Bowl and they'll have me in contention each and every single year because last year he did deal with some injury issues. He dealt with some immaturity issues. And I've always worried about not just his small stature, but at some point he's not always going to be able to outrun the competition. At some point, while, yeah, he'll be able to move around, he's going to have to 
learn how to be more of a pure thrower of the football rather than just a video game out there. He's not going to be able to pull the Mike Vick routine his entire career. But now for those complaining about the, the amount on this deal, just remember it's a next man up situation. This is only for now that he has, you know, the highest guarantee and second highest average annual salary, because there are other quarterbacks that are going to be due contracts in the very near future. We're Joe Burrow at some point, probably by uh, the beginning of next year, is going to sign a new deal with the Bengals. Justin Herbert, the same. Those guys are going to get monstrous deals, well-deserved deals that are going to go blow past this. The next name, though, to drop is going to be Lamar Jackson. And before you know, anyone asks, you know, that people kept bringing up, oh, what about Lamar? What about Lamar? People, the Ravens would, do, would sign Lamar to a long-term extension right now. They would give him... Five years for, you know, somewhere between 270 and $280 million right now. It's not them that doesn't want to do the deal. Lamar, who doesn't have an agent, keeps pushing it off, pushing it off, pushing it off. So it's a matter of when he wants to get a deal done. And I don't know if there's something about being part of the Ravens organization he doesn't like, that he's ready to move on from. Or he just he wants to hit true free agency, but saw last year with the injury problems that he dealt with, each day you push it off, you're risking the chances of a catastrophe and missing out on that big payday. So you hope for his sake that he gets a deal done sooner rather than later. Going to take one final break here. Come back on the other side. Close things out with some thoughts on the documentary ESPN began airing this way last week. The Captain. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Oh, 
All right, welcome back to Keeping It Sports with M3. Only a few more minutes left here, but uh, let's finish off with a few things here. First off, an embarrassing day for Major League Baseball yesterday. A day that, quite frankly, they should look themselves in the mirror and be ashamed of. Because yesterday was the Hall of Fame induction ceremony up in Cooperstown for the 2022 class for the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. Headlined, of course, by Red Sox legend David Ortiz. And I will take it to my dying grave. I will continue to bring it up. I will not stop until someone gives me a definitive answer on this. A real, true answer. Not just some fake, mumbo-jumbo BS answer. Why does David Ortiz get a free pass? Why is he the one guy that the baseball writers and the Hall of Fame have said, oh, he can come in, but the rest of the PED guys can't. Let's take it to account. You know, Bonds and Clemens have barely gotten the pass, that 55% threshold, or past 55% toward the 75% threshold to get into the Hall of Fame. You know, they're never going to get in if the writers have anything to say about it. The same is going to go for Alex Rodriguez, who I think barely got like 35%. But the writers rolled out the red carpet for David Ortiz this past year. He got north of 80%. And I, I for the life of me, can't understand why. Because, yes, I know the, the drug testing in 2003, that was before there were any penalties were involved. That was bef before there were suspensions involved for failed PED tests. And that was back when uh, the players were vehemently against drug testing, were vehemently against uh, you know, getting uh, the potential suspensions and that we weren't supposed to know the names that were involved there. But you're going to tell me that we're going to you know, hold it against Alex Rodriguez. We're going to hold it against you know, Manny Ramirez and Sammy Sosa, three names that were revealed on that. People, David Ortiz, his name was mentioned Right there with the rest of them, he's the one that seemingly gets the free pass. That is treated like, oh, he did nothing wrong and the rest of these guys are the worst people in the world. It really makes no sense whatsoever to me. I've never quite understood why. He's the one guy that gets that free pass. And quite frankly, baseball should be ashamed of themselves. I mean, yesterday on what was the 58th birthday of Barry Lamar Bonds, 
arguably the greatest offensive force I've ever seen in, in baseball. And we know the deal with him. He, well, he, he never failed a test as far as we know of. We know he did steroids. Whether he knows that he took it or not, he did something to his body that increased his performance, went from being arguably the best player in the sport at that point between him and Ken Griffey to being, you know, a modern-day version of Babe Ruth and his body being inhumanly large. It, it really it makes no sense at all. And baseball and the Hall of Fame, quite frankly, should be embarrassed. Now, the other thing I want to close out with talking about today is in the last week, uh, ESPN began to air the first couple of episodes of the documentary series on Yankees legend Derek Jeter entitled The Captain. And there were already things, a lot of things that we knew about Derek Jeter coming into this. You know, whether it be his upbringing, the fact that he is the offspring of of an interracial marriage with his father being African-American and his mom being white, didn't, didn't realize that they had, you know, both served in uh, the war and that, and that they met overseas as uh, part of uh, their duty. And, th- and that's what led to their relationship. But how well they handled bringing up Derek and his uh, sister uh, being um, interracial children and that uh, how racism was still unfortunately alive and well uh, during their childhood. But you start to see things that I don't think the common fan knew about Jeter. The fact that you know, he's the high school player of the year coming coming into the 92 draft and fell to number six in that draft behind five college athletes. And to me, the best story to come out of that is the fact that the Astros uh, scout, former big leaguer Hal Newhouse, retired the day after the draft because the Houston Astros took Phil Nevin instead of taking Derek Jeter. And while Nevin had an acceptable career, you never really heard of any of those uh, other players. You never heard from any of them again. While Jeter would go on to greatness, would go on to a Hall of Fame career. And it wasn't always easy. In the beginning, he struggled in the minor leagues, but worked his way up, was the minor league player of the year in 94, before uh, getting his first big league call-up in 95. And that was probably big in his development, the fact that even though he didn't play much, he got to sit there and witness what it was like to be part of a playoff run. Got to be sit there and get the ear of Don Mattingly and learn what it was like to be a big leaguer and how to do things the right way. Now, part two is when we started to see the juicy stuff. You know, not just uh, Joe Torre becoming his manager and everything, but the fact that 
he almost didn't make the team out of of spring training in '96 uh, due to his struggling. And if not for uh, Tony Fernandez breaking his arm in the final week of spring training, they probably trade Mariano Rivera to Seattle for Felix Fermin and send Derek Jeter to the minor leagues. And that would have changed everything about Yankee history. There would have been no dynasty. There would have been no four titles in five years. We probably wouldn't have seen the greatest closer of all time because Seattle might have continued to try him as a starting pitcher. You began get a taste of what's to come in this documentary as far as his relationship with Alex Rodriguez. And that's going to be a big story throughout this because we know how things fell apart there and how it's going to clearly show how delusional at times Alex Rodriguez can be and realize that despite what he thinks, he's not the most popular person in the world. And it does have a a lot of people that he rubs uh, the wrong way. You know, Jeter had some uh, funny one-liners throughout these first two parts, including, you know, when he said about A-Rod, you can compare stats all you want. I compare who won more. And clearly it was uh, the Yankees. But A-Rod being delusional, saying that people believe – I believe, really got off on trying to drive a wedge between Derek and I. At the beginning, you kind of had an innocent climb. Once you get a a little bit too high, people want to get two brothers and split them apart. By the sound of things, I don't think Jeter really viewed you as a brother, like you might think, Alex. But Jeter and how he handled New York life, nightlife, how he was always out partying when uh, the Yankees were at home at least four or five nights a week. Did smartly avoid some uh, potentially bad situations that popped up when he could have been out hanging out with uh, Diddy and J-Lo back when. His leadership that he showed early in his career, especially standing up to David Wells as he did. But the other thing besides his falling apart relationship with Alex that you're going to see throughout this is that he does not have a close relationship with the Yankee front office as one might think, especially Brian Cashman. We're going to kind of see something a lot along the lines of what happened in uh, the last dance where members of the Bulls front office, you know, come off looking like the bad guy here. And that's what's going to happen here. You're going to see the the relationship between Jeter and Brian Cashman, how it, in no way possible is it all warm and fuzzy. How in no way possible is it, you know, kumbaya between the two of them, starting with that arbitration hearing in 98 and how Jeter felt disrespected by the front office. And another example on why the players should not be in that meeting, let the agent in the front office handle it out, hash it out. But Jeter's final comment of part two, very telling. And comments I think a lot of people could use, a lot of people could learn from. When he said, 
Now, for me, I'm very, very loyal. Very loyal. But loyalty one way is stupidity. I expect the same in return. And if I feel you're taking advantage or trying to take advantage of me, I'm done. And we're going to see that when it comes to the relationship of him and Brian Cashman. Because as we know, Cashman wanted to move, or seemingly wanted to move on from him at the end, even when Jeter had given up so much to this organization. Can't wait to see how this all plays out in parts three through seven. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 from Monday, July 25th, 2022. Everyone have a great night, have a great week, and I'll talk to you again same time next Monday. Until then, peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.